0: Hi, my name's Dr Rachel Steen and I'm a GP Registrar working in Sheffield. Unfortunately, despite our best efforts, patients most in need don't get the best care. This problem is present and very real in the UK. I feel, with increasing challenges and changes in both our health and social care services, health inequality needs to be at the top of the agenda. Despite having had a keen interest in population health and preventative medicine throughout my training, I find tackling health inequalities often feels complex, with no obvious solutions. Throughout this podcast, I aim to simplify this. I'll be talking to some of the most experienced colleagues in the field, hoping to fuel interest, inspiration and further discussion around this challenging topic. Welcome to Finding Fair Health podcast. Today I'm absolutely thrilled to be here in Glasgow interviewing Professor Graham Watt just hours before a conference he's running on the exceptional potential of general practice and also the launch of his new book of the same name. Graham has worked in multiple areas of the UK at the start of his career as a doctor. During this time, he was fortunate enough to undertake a research post in Glencoreg in South Wales with the visionary Julian Tudor Hart. Following training to be a GP in Edinburgh and Glasgow, he went on to do his public health training and worked in posts in epidemiology, health services research management and public health. In 1994, he became Norrie Miller Professor of General Practice at the University of Glasgow. It is evident in the national and global respect for Graham, the quality of his research and the passion he has for general practice and for reducing health inequalities. Graham retired in December two thousand and sixteen, but remains active as emeritus professor and honorary senior research fellow at the University of Glasgow, which I know is still keeping him very busy. So, Graham, welcome to this episode of Finding Fair Health.
1: Hi.
0: Hi. So, I've been reading your new book, and I think it calls it a circuitous route to where you are now. Tell me more about this. Um.
1: Well, I never intended to write a book, and, and now. Here it is. It just seemed that the opportunity was right. Um, and, I, and I had a, a, a network of people whom I knew could contribute to it. Uh, in fact, the whole thing was imagined, commissioned, written, edited and produced in a year, which is lightning fast. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that uh, it was based on people who knew each other and there was a coherence to it. Uh, but I also felt that general practice being such a disparate, scattered, variable entity, it always loses out from being uh, scattered. And I felt that there was a body of ideas and examples uh, and writing that could be brought together in one place that would be important, not just as a a document of record, but also as a kind of a handbook for people thinking about their careers in the future. Uh, So the, the book hopes that people will will say three things when they've read it. One, yes, this is what I do as a generalist. Uh, two, yes, um, this is the direction in which I want my career to be going. And three, yes, is this is what I want to be part of in terms of a, a kind of collegiate environment. So I hope it'll be a book that people will uh, buy if they're GP registrars or give to medical students. preferably before they make career choices. Mm-hmm. Just to let them know that outside the the very dominant model and ethos of the teaching hospital, there's another world that's vibrant and exciting and, and rewarding.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, it is certainly a fantastic book and congratulations. And so, do you think of this book as sort of? I know, obviously, you retired a few years ago. Do you uh, sort of culmination of um, um, a life's work or?
1: Uh, I, I, well. That's well. There's 55 contributors, so it's mm. it's not just, not just mine. Me. Although yeah. there's a very personal stamp to it, and yeah. the choices I've made are sometimes idiosyncratic, are very much mine. Mm. Um, I don't have another book like this up my sleeve. You know, it's a one-off kind of a thing. Uh, I'm quite encouraged by the speed at which it was possible to produce it. I think, well, maybe I do another book, but it wouldn't be quite like this. It, uh, but I must say, I'm, I'm personally pleased with it.
0: Yeah, well, you should be. You should be. And um, tell me a little bit about. Um, I've obviously gone through a bit in the introduction about how you've got to where you are now. Um, tell me a little bit more about your career and yeah. where you got to. Well, where I was you a
1: student at Aberdeen. Um, mm-hmm. I got involved with a thing called the British Medical Students Association. We were very keen on medical education at that time mm-hmm. and its need for reform. Uh, mm-hmm. It was about five years after every other kind of student had been radicalised in the 60s. Uh, And I was involved in organising a conference on uh, designing a new curriculum. It was a hopelessly ambitious conference. It was uh, torpedoed by a rail strike. Uh, But one of the people who had been invited to be an expert facilitator of her group work was Julian Tudor Hart, whom I met for the first time. And um, I'd read his stuff, which is exhilarating to read if people haven't read it—the the stuff in the in the seventies and the eighties—and uh, I uh, I arranged to go and do my general practice attachment in Glen Corrig in nineteen seventy-five. It was the first Scottish student he'd had, and uh, it was just a, a a fantastic experience. You know, it was suddenly you are uh, living at a different level. Uh, and uh, in this small microcosm Julian and his wife Mary it was such a rich experience he was talking about the future he was working towards the future it was uh, absolutely embedded in in a community and uh, I thought well i am not sure what path my career will take but the one thing I know for certain is I will come back and work here so I did, I got the MRC Research registrar job and got an MD out of it eventually mm-hmm. uh, worried whether that was going to the back of beyond but really has never been more central than working in that place because of the flow of ideas and the contacts that, that Julian had uh, so I, and I, how do you follow that? Well not by trying to be the same type of person, I wasn't the same type of person as Julian.
0: For those listening who don't know much about Julian yeah. Trudeau Hart, um, and Mary, um, yeah. his wife, um, can you tell me a little bit more about them, Greg? Well, he's why been, they had such a big impact on He's
1: probably you? the most famous general practitioner, and essentially he's been the conscience of the NHS since it was started. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always been, uh, he was a communist to begin with, uh, stood for Parliament, thank goodness he didn't get in, uh, <laughs> moved to the Labour Party. But his politics were always practical and uh, expressed in a language which didn't alienate or divide. uh, and was very much to do with being embedded in a community. You know, he he, he was the first doctor in that mining community that became an ex-mining community whose children had gone to the local school and who lived in the village. So he he was very much practising what he, he preached. Which, was, which gave power to his writing because it wasn't just rhetorical, it was actually based on, on data often. And basically he just seized the opportunity that a general practitioner has in the National Health Service with no financial bias to do what it was possible to do through building up long-term relationships with all his patients, not just the ones who came. And uh, working towards... So there were, there were principles of solidarity, of uh, working together, Uh, Being a doctor in a community, uh, almost everything he did he was able to document with data which meant that it didn't disappear. Uh, He wrote books, he wrote articles, he was invited to lecture. I think he he gave GPs uh, an image of themselves as important people in the medical profession, not secondary to consultants or teaching hospitals, and he expressed it in a language that was accessible. And uh, uh, although he's not so well known to the current Generation. His story needs to be remembered because it's so important as a story and the principles that underpinned it. It certainly fired me for forty years of a career. And the fact that there are, you know, over two hundred people coming this afternoon to a meeting in Glasgow about Julian is, uh, you know, there are lots of personal paths being being joined coming to this meeting. Uh, so it's a it's a very much a one-off, almost historical. Uh, uh, occasion uh, celebrating um, not just a story that took place 30 years ago but about an example which has the potential to fire people into the future. So, and the book captures a bit of his writing to give a flavour of it
0: yeah so it's obviously ignited something in in you when you obviously first met him yeah. um you say a little bit about solidarity practicing what you preach him sort of immersing himself yeah. within that community um which is amazing um and i can really relate to that as a gp trainee and seeing yeah. the benefits of all of those things so what was it sort of either on top of that or deep within you that really fired that
1: i just found it. That uh, here was uh, almost an ideology in a language which I hadn't been exposed to in medical school, mm-hmm. which was exciting. Uh, it was mm-hmm. progressive. It wasn't, you know, it didn't have this sort of crusty, traditional uh, establishment nature of the medical school, especially the specialist mm-hmm. nature of the medical school, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, you, you make choices as to how you want to spend your career. And, and I had a problem when I left, because I wasn't going to repeat the experiment uh, or the example. Uh, quite a circuitous route, which nobody else would be able to, to follow now. Um, and to some extent, I had this... You know, in my bag, I had this experience. And the question is, how do you find expression for that elsewhere? And for a long time... And to keep it in the back because there weren't really opportunities. And if you spoke about Julian Staff, uh, on reflection, he was still so far ahead of the game that it was difficult to engage with colleagues about what he was doing. But then the world caught up with him. You know, There are several GP contracts which have enshrined his example, often mis- 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 inaccurately. Uh, uh, and to some extent, we've moved beyond what he was doing uh now in terms of community engagement and the extended team. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, it kept me going, and I felt this is something that is very sustaining from a career point of view. I don't know, I mean, I suppose that, that, that um, uh, the thing that was really attractive was the sense of purpose um, and, and strategic purpose over a long period of time, building something over a period of time, and therefore being uh, of value, and of being part of something. Yeah. I mean, I know that J- Julian, you know, who came from a privileged London background, looked for a community that, that he could belong to, and he often talked about it, it as being a way in which privileged people, being a doctor, was the way in which privileged people could rejoin the human race. And he knew himself well enough to know that the only way he could ever be embedded in a mining community was as, as, a, was as a doctor with all of the position and relationships that that would involve. And he chose very well because it suited him down to the the ground. And he, by his own admission, he was originally rather paternalistic and authoritarian. Uh, That was the nature of the job in the early 60s. But he changed, because he had to change, uh, very much towards the model of co-production of working with patients. And that was because he ended up knowing all these patients. They were his friends as well as his patients. And he was working with them over a long period of time. So it was a, it was an example of how to be and to live and to work as a doctor, which was very compelling. Mm. And it integrated lots of things. It integrated clinical work with epidemiology, with research, with social advocacy. He had it all worked out. Uh, and if you visited the Queen's, which was the converted old hotel that they lived in, uh, it was a family home... You know, life and work were indivisible because uh, they were in the village in the practice and continuous flow of visitors, a rich discussion over the, over the dinner table because they host all sorts of, 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 of people. And I hadn't, I hadn't come across that in, uh, in medicine. And I think to some extent, you know, medical education is still dominated by the specialist model. Uh, I think we're going through a, a crisis in medicine that the specialist model is too dominant it doesn't provide the answers to people with multimorbidity, and the, the balance of influence and authority and resource between specialists and generalists needs to be reset uh, not going to happen overnight but I think specialism doesn't have the answers that society now needs because specialism is about building things down into small bits that, that a specialist can deal with Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the only way in which they can work is by excluding things that don't fit their area of expertise. Well, that excludes large numbers of, of patients, especially the most complex patients, especially the patients that keep the health service busy because of their, their complex needs. So that's th- something
0: that definitely inspires me about primary care, is the holistic side of it and the side being yeah. able to actually think about each individual problem um, and also the complex side of patient's needs.
1: Well, people ask why there's a picture of stones on the front of the book. It's quite funny, really. People think, uh, you know, stones in glass houses or throwing stones. Uh, The answer's in the book because there's there's a picture in the book of uh, 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 an organisation of stones. Um, And the point of it is that uh, they're rather beautiful stones from a variety of Scottish beaches. But they all have their individual beauty, Uh, they've all existed for millions of years they'll be here for millions of years after we've gone but this particular uh, uh, picture captures how they've been organized in a pattern and it shows that whilst accepting the individuality of every component it's possible to build something out of it that Mm -hmm. is uh, also beautiful in its own way so the, the, the simple metaphor is the idea of using the basic ingredients of general practice to build something holistic not just at the level of individual patients but at the level of the of the the group of the population the or, or the yeah. community yeah. Uh, and, and that, that I think that's very topical because uh, all those things are in great need of being rebuilt mm-hmm. recaptured and it's it's you know the world seems to be going to pot in all sorts of ways uh, But to some extent, I think we're in the position of needing a resistance movement, Mm -hmm. you know, of people who are uh, not going the way of the world, they're trying to change it, Uh, they realise that they need to be connected with others, Uh, and for the time being, until the the situation changes, the model of a resistance movement, I think, is pertinent. So a resistance movement needs to have its own internal rules and language and communication, and... uh, you know, well, so is this
0: why GP is so important? Do you think?
1: Well, it's 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 it A it, uh, general practice is not the centre of the world. It's not the most important thing, but it's the but it's it's, it's what we can do as doctors. Yeah. So. Uh, Let's not uh, stop short of what it's possible for doctors to do. But, um, and there's always a problem when you're too focused on general practice, because then there's a whole army of people who say, well, it's not just about general practice. There's nurses, there's pharmacists, there's hospital managers, there's all sorts of, of people. And that's, that's true, um, but general practice has some things that those professions don't have, and that is, especially in the National Health Service, it's contact, continuity, coverage, Uh, flexibility, long-term relationships, trust. There's no other public service that's got it in such large degrees. No, it's not not exclusive to general practice, and it's not consistent within general practice, but there's no other public service that has those features. And for the problems we face in the future of, of helping people live longer and better with multimorbidity, you need those essential ingredients. And the GP is sitting in the driving seat, and of course, at the moment it's very discretionary as to which direction he goes in or she goes in mm-hmm. so that the opportunities are often not realized or, or, or chosen and um, but there is the possibility and that's why the book is called the exceptional potential of general practice it, it, it draws on a, a famous article I think from the 70s by Stott and Davis it talks about the exceptional potential of the consultation what you can do when you see a patient yeah. well this is saying well fine by all that, but there's also exceptional potential within what a general practice is and can do over a period of time, not just for the individual patient, but for all patients. And it, um, you know, that, that's not going to happen overnight. Uh, Tudor Hart provided a spectacular early pioneering example of what he could do in a, a former mining village in, in South Wales. Uh, but single examples and lone voices are not going to change the world. You need to have uh, alliances uh, and networks of lots of people doing the same thing. Not extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, but but ordinary people doing extraordinary things, or things which seemed extraordinary to begin with. The thing about Julian's example, you know, he was the first GP in the world to measure the blood pressure of all of his patients. And when he did that, that was quite a task. Now it's... Every day, yeah. The information system that allows you to pick up what you haven't done is now so easy that it's not a difficult task. But in those days, he had to imagine the information system uh, and and organise the records in order to know what he hadn't done. And that was the pioneering thing. But the fact that what was pioneering 50 years ago is mainstream now should be an encouragement for us to be pioneering and not to accept things as they are. And in a a sense, uh, it's more challenging because blood pressure is quite simple. It's a a measurement. You've got to do it to find out what it is. You can't rely on symptoms. Uh, You need an information system to tell you what you haven't done. Uh, The principles of that system uh, apply to all aspects of of healthcare. Uh, And the challenge in the future is dealing with patients with, not just multimorbidity, but complex multimorbidity. And the outcome is not going to be blood pressure control. It's going to be whether patients are kept alive, but but probably more important than that, kept alive in a way that meets their goals. So that has to be negotiated and found out. Well, for blood pressure, we've got an information system that tells us exactly what we need to know. The information system that tells us how we're doing in helping people with complex multimorbidity live with their conditions doesn't exist Needs to be imagined, developed, piloted, and shared. Uh, it seems daunting at present, but perhaps in thirty or forty years' time, we'll have cracked it. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 um, I, I've kind of lost interest in health in health inequalities, and especially the world of health inequalities experts, who I think are possibly one of the reasons why we continue to have health inequalities because. whilst we have this world of experts in health inequalities, everybody else can withdraw and say, well, they're dealing with it. Well, they're not, because they don't have connections to what's happening on the the ground. Uh, I mean, I've sometimes sat in to interviews with GPs about what they think about health inequalities, and uh, I cringe, because it's like sitting in a medical student exam in public health. Where people are being asked to demonstrate their their knowledge uh, and understanding of a particular discipline, uh, and uh, the GPs that are being interviewed always feel uncomfortable because they're not familiar with the language, you know, social determinants of health and health inequality and all those sorts of things. Um, and what they, they shortchange themselves is the, the authority that they have from the experience that they've got which is seeing the whites of people's eyes and seeing one on a daily basis uh, you know, it's a bit like you know, there's that play by Moliere where a character declares that he, he, he suddenly realised at the age of 70 that he'd been speaking prose all his life uh, well GPs are dealing with health inequalities or, or the consequences of them uh, they're only seeing one side of the equation The health inequalities are based on comparing two groups you know, the haves and the have-nots um, but, but practitioners are generally seeing the have-nots and the issue is the difference between what, it, it, between, between what needs to be done what can be done and what could be done and that's the battleground for health inequalities it's not passing an exam and understanding the social determinants it's what difference can you make to that person and can you do it for lots of people so that it collectively it adds up to something and uh, if you're working if you're doing that in your practice is somebody doing it in a neighbouring practice th- does it all add up mm-hmm. um, yeah. and in some
0: ways you need to be able to change the system though
1: yeah. I, I think that the uh the question mean, there's an important question how do systems change especially in a progressive direction mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I read an interesting article in the London Review of Books a couple of years ago it said that the, 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 the thesis was that um, the default was the market and capitalism and, and neoliberalism neoliberal economic development and the things that stopped that default were cataclysmic events like, uh, like uh, economic crashes, like wars like epidemics, like earthquakes um, which, which stopped people and they realized what they have in common how they need that's how the health service came into into being in the in the nhs basically so you, the, the it's quite difficult to shift establishments of power and resource in peacetime you know mm-hmm. because the power and resource are entrenched uh and that's one of the frustrations the, D- the deep end group has had is that 10 years on we really haven't made much of a difference to the the structural aspects of the university. just tell us law.
0: briefly about what the deep end group is well
1: the deep end it's it's, uh, it's the in Scotland it's the 100 most deprived general practices uh, and before they met a the conference in 2009 they'd never been convened or consulted by anybody and we had them in a room would not people be negative, you know, whining, complaint, no. Because everyone was in the same boat and there was nobody else, it was immediately on the front foot, positive, yeah. buzz Solution of the meeting. Focus. And, uh, and uh, you know, we're 10 years on, we've had 50 or 60 steering group meetings all in the evening, all at least 10, sometimes 20 people, GPs. You know, what evening meetings attract GPs nowadays? Not, not many. And the fact that that continued... So vibrantly for so long, and still does suggest that that people were were wanted to come, and that something elemental was was being uh, addressed. I think your question about systems is is important, but in the book it talks about Horizon A, which is the current establishment and distribution of power and resource. Horizon C is where we want to get to, and B is how you get from A to C. Yeah. Well, the. Um, uh, Establishments don't give up power and resource voluntarily on the basis of well-founded, evidence-based and rhetorical arguments. You know, power and resource are protected, and that's one of the things that we've, we've learnt, uh, that uh, you can't shift that uh, with single examples of progressive practice. Um, but one of the reasons why, to to heart, I think has been influential over a long period of time is that his arguments were always hand in hand with practical examples of what he'd done and uh, I think one of the things that we've been able to do in the deep end is to complement the arguments about the inverse care law with examples of how it could be addressed within practices and you know, practical examples and that's that strengthens the arguments, more people need to be involved in it, but, but uh
0: can you give us some brief examples of those? Oh,
1: there's, there's lo- lo- lots of them. W- one is if you uh, y- y- you need to, you know, as, as Julian said of the inverse care law, he said you know, the people who haven't got shoes are the people who need shoes the most. Yeah. So there is a need to put some extra resource into deep end practices, um, not through the contract where people get the money and it's entirely up to them how it's spent. That's not going to be attractive to any funder. Um, what we did was we were able to put uh, young GPs into practices, adding the capacity by about 10%. Sometimes they were locums, sometimes they were GP fellows, and the purpose of doing that was not just to add their contribution to practice, it was to release the time of the host GPs, uh, to give them a protected session every week, to do whatever they thought would be a good use of that time. And that's what you really want, because The GPs who've been there a long time have got the knowledge and the experience who know what needs to be done, they just don't have the opportunity. So in a sense that approach is both about recruiting the next generation because what we've found is that when young GPs have that experience and environment, it's attractive. So lots of them have stayed in the practices eventually as whole partners or salaried uh, in the practices. it releases the, the and re-energizes the existing GPs. What they tend to do is um, set time aside for patients whom they know, uh, uh, whose care is not well coordinated. You know, lots of problems. It's not so much unmet need as uncoordinated care or poorly coordinated care. They know that if they sit down for 40 minutes or so and just go through things, they'll find a lot of things about the patient they didn't know. They can work out the issues that matter and work out a plan to go through them and use that plan to drive um, integrated care, usually through existing arrangements, not through new arrangements. Um,
0: and that's the simple resource of time, isn't it?
1: Exactly, yeah. but also the, the, the GP's knowledge of the patients who would benefit. So I mean, Because if you simply do it as a data-based exercise, you try and identify the needy patients from data, it's very imprecise, you know. The, the, it's not just a question of counting the conditions. You need to know something yeah. of the people, because some people with lots of conditions aren't complex, and some people who are complex have only one condition. Yeah. So there's a, there's a knowledge that a, an experienced practitioner has got, which is really important because it can make choices that data can't. And. Uh, so our example of extra time is, is is allied to making use of the cumulative knowledge and experience of practitioners who know their patients well. Yeah. You, then then you, the, in the governance, there's an enhanced the multidisciplinary team meeting once a month, uh, resourced it with a, a administrator, and that's expanded in terms of the numbers of people who come, and it's just a, an opportunity to uh, set the wheels in motion. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting that governorship it's not about restructuring, it's about getting the existing relationships to work better and the problem is that uh, you have all the right people but they're often working to their own internal agendas, their accountability to managers at the centre, so there's, there's nothing that brings it to a point in the community because everyone's mm-hmm. looking in yeah. a different direction. Uh,
0: I'm pleased you mentioned the multidisciplinary team because it's an interesting thing for me that I know that general practice and primary care is massively about that multidisciplinary team approach, and a lot now general practice is drawing on allied health professionals to take on roles. And how do you think that fits in with the deep end movement, allied health professionals? Well, I think that
1: that's the direction of of, of travel. there's a political context of competing for power and resource, because uh, one of the things that's happened in the last 15 to 20 years has been a, a very big expansion of specialist services in the mm-hmm. community, whether they're mental health or child health or drugs and addiction. Uh, and so there's there's it's difficulty getting these different empires to cohere. Um, the job of the... Of the, the, the GP is, 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 is not the commander or the general... But he's in, a, he's in a strategic position because patients come to him or her and that's the starting and turning point of care and you can, you can uh, re-energise care on the basis of that knowledge. And the GP is, is, is I, I think, of the model of, a, of an orchestral conductor. You know, you've got this orchestra in front of you, everybody plays a different instrument, they're all expert, you can't play any of the instruments. All you can do is try and get things to work better together and so that, that doesn't involve power can no. you can't command it to happen you have to understand what it is you're trying to do and to enable it and encourage it and uh, so I
0: suppose leadership comes in there doesn't it, it
1: is, but it, yes but it's not leadership of position or, or of authority it, okay. it's, it's leadership that comes from knowledge and right place at the right time and I think it, it's leadership with with often with a light touch because you have to respect and uh, delegate. And value what other people are able to do. Because apart, apart from anything else, there just isn't time in the day to do everything. You get burnt up if you yeah. do that. So in the book, there's a. I've, uh, it's maybe fanciful, but I talk about uh, Berlioz, the conductor, uh, who's also a composer, went around Europe uh, conducting his pieces, and he said, you know, it was fine for Paganini with his violin and uh, Liszt with his piano. They turned up one afternoon got the instrument, and entertained the audience, picked up the fee and went off. Uh, because Berlioz was conducting his own pieces, he had to find out who was available locally to play in the orchestra. He would have to re the piece if there was instruments missing. He'd have to establish the strength of the players, in terms of what they could play. Then he had to rehearse them, uh, and then he had to conduct a performance. So there was there was the, the, the composing of it was what he had in his mind's eye of what he wanted to see done, orchestrating it to fit the people who could play it, rehearsing it, and then conducting it. So, well integrated care is all about composing, orchestrating, conducting, and as in an orchestral concert, the proof of the pudding is what it does to the audience or the the patient. So, I think um, I mean that that, that, that may seem that right yeah. but, but I think having a language no, 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 no. That, that, that that explains what we're trying to do in integrated care because integrated care is another one of these abstract
0: abstract terms you know, and there's, we, yeah. a, there's a
1: whole world of people who are, t- who are uh, about integrated care yeah and by talking about they're taking it away from the reality which is a patient with a list of issues what are we going to do with each one who do we need to 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 connect with to uh, and how do we connect with them and and the uh, there's not so much of a difference between building up a relationship with patients over a period of time and building up relationships with professional colleagues. Sense, yeah. You know, it's based on knowledge, respect, trust comes from positive experiences and confidence in the future. And we're we much better at doing that with patients than, than, than we are with colleagues. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and, and some kinds of management are hopeless at it. They, uh, the only tool in their bag is managerial authority. And that's not Mm -hmm. how you get things done. People don't like being told what to do uh, in any sphere of life. Uh, If you tell people what to do, they're quite likely not to do it, and they might even do the opposite. So you have to find a way of uh, enabling them to make the decision so that they own it. Uh, Well, that's the kind of leadership that's required, and it it doesn't come from... uh, You know, it's interesting in, in the book that we often quote, an example from Julian's book, a new kind of doctor, a patient with multi-morbidity who'd survived 25 years, 310 consultations, 41 hours of work, initially face-to-face, eventually side-by-side. Um, the important things were the things that hadn't happened, no strokes, heart attacks, kidney failure. Um, so where are the satisfactions for the GP in doing that? And I think it, the satisfaction comes from the relationship. You know this particular patient who'd survived 25 years eventually died of something else, not his initial conditions. And we asked Julian about that uh, in the Glasgow department. And uh, he had a tear in his eye when he's was talking about it because the, the, the patient was his friend. Uh, so that was, you know, a, a surgeon doing emergency work on a Saturday night might feel that he saved a life and get satisfaction from that. The is not going to have that. David Haslam, who used to chair UK councils, said, uh, uh, I don't often save a life, but I change lives every day. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. so I think the...
0: Uh, I love that. That's so fundamental to what being a GP yeah. means to me.
1: And it uh, it is is it it is satisfying, but it, it, it the satisfaction, I think, comes from long-term relationships. And that, that's why, you know, the current fashion for some young doctors to try and make a living by rotating through locum posts, never developing relationships with anybody, patients. is so awful for them, and awful for the profession, and awful for the health service, because uh, it completely avoids the possibilities that there are. You know, if this if, if the system it seems to be against us at present for whatever yeah. reason, uh, there's a need to, to regroup and be connected as a network of like-minded colleagues who are got their mindset and on how things need to be in the future. And the thing about general practice is that there is still a huge amount of discretion within it. Mm -hmm. You know, compared to most people who are funded, essentially from public funds, uh, GPs have an enormous amount of discretion. uh, And uh, maybe not as much as they would like, uh, uh, maybe more than they feel, but they do have a lot of discretion. I mean, apart from when the, the... uh, GPs at the deep end uh, have been writing reports on alcohol and on welfare benefits um, and on health care uh, we've been able to produce reports, sort of independent reports, without having to ask anybody higher up whether we can do it you know, a head teacher in a community cannot speak out about the inverse education law because he's, he, he's not an independent operator within the system but a, G- a GP can speak about, and uh, that's why when we did our first report on uh, on the effects of austerity on patients and practices, uh, it was it had huge authority because it was frontline evidence and experience. Uh, it had a certain novelty. You know that study was imagined, carried out, disseminated, and was on and on people's desks within about ten weeks. It's sort of what you could do. If you just provided a little bit of organisation to tap frontline experience and communicate it in an organised way to people who need to know what's happening. That's so
0: inspiring to hear. So inspiring to hear. And I I find it really inspiring to know that as as a GP we have that, that power to be able to... Well, yeah. it's, I think it's probably sort of soft, soft, soft power, isn't yeah. it? But um, that power to be able to write reports, do research, but yeah. also really fundamentally be integrated in the community. Yeah, yeah. Um, Graham, I really want to bring this back a little bit because I could talk to you for yeah. hours about your research, your the future of general practice. Yeah. But I want to bring this back a little bit to you. And you've obviously retired. I know you're staying very busy, as we've spoken about before. Um, but... If you had your time again, Graham, what would what would you do differently? Is there anything?
1: That's quite difficult to uh, imagine. Um, I was uh, I was very lucky. I mean, to some extent, you you plan, you make your own luck by how you prepare for the future, uh, the choices that you make. Um, but I um, I got the Glasgow Chair in '94. And I might not have done uh, to have got the Glasgow chair at the time I got it, with the opportunities that were available, with the colleagues that I had, was the the opportunity to take everything I'd picked up at Corrig with Julian and to run with it, but to, to express it in a different context uh, as a, an academic hub supporting a wider world. It took long. T- the, the deep end was actually the key thing because the department on its own. Uh, you know, a, a, an academic department can be an ivory tower. People have to generate careers within universities. They're, they're off the radar as far as GPs are concerned. The Deep End project has forged an alliance between academic GPs and service GPs, with contributions from both sides. So the academic department was the, the stepping stone for me, that meant that I could connect the experience of working with Julian England, Corrig with the opportunity of the Deep End project. Yeah, and. Uh, I, I was very lucky to get the Glasgow chair. It came up at the right time. I thought I'd burnt my boats. I thought I was too public health-ish. The, um, but John Howey, the professor in Edinburgh, encouraged me to apply because he knew my And story. at that point, were
0: you doing general practice as well?
1: No, I, 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 I'd, uh, I thought I had uh, lost the... Op- I had, 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 had the opportunity to become a GP partner when I finished as a trainee in 86, but I felt that was too... Restricting in a single practice because you, know, you, mm-hmm. you wouldn't have the opportunities. So I, I had to earn a living, and so I got, I got uh, trained and accredited in public health without huge enthusiasm. Although it allowed me to be an epidemiologist, yeah. Uh, uh, but I've always felt that public health was uh, a mindset rather than a discipline or a, or, a career, or a profession, and that the interesting parts of public health you can do from anywhere, general practice in particular, yeah. Uh, so I'd, um, I'd gone into academic public health with a sort of social medicine aspect to it rather than a, a health service administration uh, and I was doing research on health inequalities but uh, it was an ivory tower existence and uh, getting into the Department of General Practice um, and people were suspicious that, uh, that it was a public health takeover You know, mm-hmm. so I had to be very careful with that for a while um, but that was the perfect opportunity for me and I was so lucky to have it
0: and do you think you would do more general, so actual one to one patient care if you had your time again or not
1: um, I, 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 I don't know I mean, I was, I've never been a, 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 an NHS principal I, when I got the chair I did a couple of sessions a week for about 10 years mm-hmm. until I felt I was being de-skilled uh, no but I saw a, a role for someone um, on the boundary between general practice and, and public health, public health. Uh, and uh, I could see the creative opportunities and the synergies within that uh, and um, That's quite
0: different to what um, Julian Tudor Hart did because he obviously immersed himself very much him. I think,
1: I think um, uh, you have to know what your own strengths are and, uh, uh, and one of my um you, you develop a certain amount of awareness after a time, but but uh, um, I'm uh, spent a lot of my working life thinking and working about the future. You know, yeah. that's where my mind is. Yeah, or in the past. Uh, if you're a GP, the mind your mind's got to be in the present for the people that you're seeing, uh, and that wasn't one of my strengths. Uh, I suppose I'm too selfish in in a way, but I felt that. Uh, it's a, uh, uh, but if there's a similarity with Julian, I, I had to find a way of working with people. And the people I wanted to work with were general practitioners. I think the pe- people Julian wanted to work with was, was his patients. Uh, and um, uh, I, 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 I. I I wouldn't change the path that, that I had taken, although if I was to be setting out again it would have been with no certainty that all of the opportunities would have unfurled in the way that they did. Yeah, and but, would you but, say
0: that to yourself, if you had to say one thing to yourself, um, let's say the 18 year old Graham, would you say anything to him?
1: Oh, um, do you know? Uh, well you're, you're too young, uh, but as you get older you just cringe. You cringe about the things that you thought and did when you were, <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes you think, gosh, Almost I'm so glad I didn't get that job. You know, I could have been a medical registrar in the Royal Family of Edinburgh. Yeah. Thank goodness I didn't get that job. <laughs> uh, I could have been professor of public health in Aberdeen. You know, thank goodness I didn't get that job. Yeah.
0: Uh, okay.
1: But uh, you, um, you, uh, I like the Robert Louis Stevenson quote. You know, it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive yeah and the true, <laughs> and and the true success is to labor so the career advice i always gave younger colleagues in the department was that the the, the, the only career advice is to do your best work now because yeah. that, that will always Set you a good stead yeah and if you make good choices it's amazing at various points in your career how your cv can be can be rewritten as if you were always going for that particular opportunity. Uh, So gathering, doing the best work that you can do and gathering relevant experience, Uh, uh, it's all to do with a sense of purpose. I mean, I've often uh, used to joke that uh, I always had a, Underlying sense of purpose and direction in my career, and it was only when really when I got to the end of it that I found out what it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's, so that's almost instinctive.
0: And what is that? Um,
1: I think it's probably a um, creative, uh, productive uh, activity of a collegiate uh, and equitable nature. Um, uh, it is a, there's a creativity aspect to it trying to do things differently yeah. not, not everyone needs to have that or has that uh, Julian had it in spades he's just astonishingly creative uh, he had enough energy and ideas for half a dozen people and not just in medicine but in other fields yeah. uh, so they but people like that have to work with other people you know, what are their, their, their strengths um
0: that's so fascinating that with almost similar values how different careers you and julian have had but with quite similar similar goals in mind i find that fascinating yes.
1: um, i don't think that the they're, they're, they're not comparable i mean no. i think uh, julian is a giant no. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the scheme of things, okay. No, well, you're going to
0: say this about yourself,
1: great. No, but, but <laughs> the, uh, the nature of, the, of his achievements. Yeah, I was sitting down yesterday with his wife Mary, and she was showing me his old work diaries. Yeah, wow. Amazing.
0: Absolutely right.
1: amazing. Uh, I'd love to see those. He he worked out that in 25 years of practice, he he had two hundred and nine thousand seven hundred and sixty patient contacts. Wow, and that works out roughly the 180 contacts a week for every working week of 25 years now i if you try and work out how many gp what gpc today um i once tried to work out i thought maybe it's 150 a week yeah using 180 yeah right the way through uh that's an astonishingly hard burden of work to maintain whilst doing everything else yeah that's a monumental achievement uh um, Graham I'm
0: very conscious that you've got a conference to run today and so I've got two more quick questions for yeah. you and one of them might be an easier one, easy one because you are, um, um, we've been talking yeah. about a book already today yeah. um, as part of this but one book you would recommend to someone who's interested in the topic of fairness, the topic of reducing health inequality, whatever we call um, it.
1: Well it, it depends what you want to read the book. If you want to pass an exam in inequality and health there are numerous academic books that you could you could use but I, I wouldn't recommend them. If you're a GP I would recommend the Deep End website mm-hmm. which is full of short reports. You can either read them as short or long versions. Uh, uh, simple language. that are about the practicalities of uh, improving people's lives at a local level and that that in a sense is the what can GPs do to address health inequality? It's, it's not to do this or to do that at the behest of colleagues in health promotion and health improvement or public health, uh, the latest health health check scheme or whatever, the contribution of GPs is to provide unconditional personalised continuity of care for their patients, whatever problems they have. And by making a difference to individual patients and to all patients and all practices, you can improve health lengthen lives, and narrow health inequalities. So GPs don't have to be told by other people what to do. They need to do more general practice, in a sense. And general practice, in terms of its unconditional uh, nature and long-term productive work, is exactly what people with complex problems in deprived areas need. Um, And you you never see that in reports on inequalities in health. You never see it. No. Social determinants in health do not talk about the inverse care law as a, as a social determinant of health. Uh, so the, uh, there's a danger in reading books about inequalities in health in that you might be leaving the practical the practicalities of, of the differences that you can make. And the, what the deep end reports are doing are capturing GPs' experience and views on lots of, lots of different issues.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, fantastic. Um, that's a great thing to be signposted towards. My final question, Graham, is if a genie appeared to you, I always ask this as my final question. Yeah. So, if a genie has appeared to you and um, come out of that lamp and said, Graham, you have one wish to try and reduce health inequality. What would that one thing be?
1: The uh, well, at the moment, it would be to reduce austerity. Yeah. I think there's it, it, no question it's you know the economics of Health inequalities are the fundamental factor. Um, the, uh, what can be done in healthcare is essentially after the horse is bolted. It's just that currently it's rather a neglected part of the range of public policies. And because it's been neglected, there's great potential to do more than it currently does. Um, but in terms of health inequalities in general, you know, it's the economy stupid, it's education It's housing, it's the environment, it's uh, healthcare comes low down the risk. But that's not to say that healthcare isn't important and could be more effective.
0: No, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Graham, for this thoughtful and inspiring discussion. It's been really, really great. Um, um, I particularly enjoyed hearing about Julian Tudor Hart and um, his real connection on the ground and within his community and that impact on your career. Um, working at the deep end and your academic work um, has allowed you to connect with lots and lots of health professionals um, with a similar goal to you and yes. that's really really inspiring you talking about the movement of um, groups of health professionals yeah. and how we can make a difference well, um, well,
1: well, one of the things about the conference today you know people yeah. who are traveling across the country one for the celebrate to the heart and two to be part of the deep end discussion and uh, is it, attract- it attracts a really nice type of person Yeah, <laughs> the kind of people that you want to meet Yeah, uh, and uh, well that's conviviality it's collegiality uh, that's the driving mechanism uh, for careers uh, people need to be uh, you know uh, what's his name Donald Berwick the American uh, Medicaid chief exec said in the future people are going to have to ask themselves not just what is it that I do But also, what am I part of? So, in building a career, you need not just your expertise and your discipline, you need connections. Of all sorts of kinds. But, to like-minded colleagues, that's a very important uh, resource with which to progress a career. And um, it's not necessarily the closest colleagues that are the most like-minded.
0: Anyway. Oh, fantastic. Well, on that note, I'm looking forward to a fantastic conference with like minded colleagues. <laughs>
1: well, you, you, you must report on it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> thank you, Graham. Thank you for your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you all for listening. You will be able to find further episodes on the Fair Health website. If you haven't been on there already, please do check this out at www.fairhealth.org.uk. It is a fantastic educational resource. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review us. If you have ideas, would like to talk to us, or even if you have a suggestion of someone we could interview for an episode, please do get in touch via Twitter, at FairHealth or at RMSteam. It would be great to hear from you. I'm really looking forward to you joining us next time on our journey to finding fair health.